explaining something this morning. Uh, this is not an apology, okay, so please understand that. Uh, but it is an explanation. <clears throat> I am uh, not planning. What happened to my note? By the way, I hate electronics. <laughs> Panic. Uh, uh, this morning, can I just share my heart today? Uh, th- this is th- this is not going to be a normal sermon. This is just me sharing my heart with my family today. Does, can I do that? Is that okay? Uh, Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20. It's page 293 if you're using the Bibles there in the chairs. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Got a question for you. How many of you like change? If you if you like change, raise your hand. Okay, one, two, three, four. four. <laughs> There's about five of us. Okay. <clears throat> now, change is one of those things that everybody reacts differently to. Most people do not like change. Uh, just saying. But then there's this small group of people, <clears throat> like me, that actually thrive on change. Uh, it, to me, and, and uh, obviously to a couple other people, uh, it is a challenge. And, and I love cha- I'm very competitive. My nature is very competitive. So change only brings out the worst in me because I, I get, you know, I, I, I just I thrive on change. <clears throat> but most of us enjoy living in the status quo. <clears throat> I read something many years ago that I wanted to read uh, this morning, and, and uh, I, I have found it to be interesting. I, I, I believe it to be relatively accurate. I don't know how accurate, but it, it, it's close to being accurate, if you put it that way, uh, at least to, to the best of my understanding. Have you ever wondered what the distance, what is what is what is considered the U.S. standard railroad gauge? What the have you ever wondered what the distance is between the rails? Okay, well I'm going to tell you, it's four feet eight and a half inches. Okay, it's about about that big. Okay, four feet, excuse me, yeah, four feet, eight and a half inches. And I I learned that many, many years ago, and I thought, why such an odd distance? Okay, well, let let me read to you this article I read many, many years ago. It says, why such an odd number? Because that's the way they built them in England. Okay, and the American railroad uh, railroads were built 
by by British uh, ex <coughs> expatriates. Excuse me. <clears throat> Why did England adopt that particular gauge? Because the people who built the pre-railroad transway used that gauge. Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> they turn. Uh, they in turn were locked into that gauge because the people who built the trans the, the, the tramways used the same standard and tools that were used to build wagons, which were set on a gauge of four feet eight and a half inches. <clears throat> Why were wagons built to that scale? <laughs> because <clears throat> with any other size, the wheels would not match <clears throat> the old wheel ruts in the roads. <clears throat> so when the wagons were built, they had to build the wagons to match the ruts that were already in the road. So who built the old roads with the old ruts? I'm glad you asked. The first long-distance highway in Europe was built by the Romans for the benefit. <laughs> there you go. Uh, for the benefit of their legions, the roads uh, have been uh, in use ever since. The ruts were first made by Roman war chariots. Four feet. Eight and a half inches is the width a chariot needed to be to accommodate the rear ends of two horses. So in other words, that's the way it's always been. <laughs> We've always done it that way. You just now getting it, Bob? <laughs> we have our church over the last couple years has gone through a transformation of sorts. If you were here two years ago, Grace Baptist Church looks different today than it did two years ago. <clears throat> we have lost several people over the last couple years. Some of them to death. Many of them have moved away. Uh, some some have just decided not to come here anymore. It doesn't really matter, uh, but Grace Baptist Church is different. This morning, as we were getting ready to walk out the door, I <clears throat> opened my calendar on my phone, and I, I looked back, and a year ago yesterday, Anybody remember what a year ago yesterday was? <laughs> well, other than Orlando's birthday. <clears throat> uh, a year ago yesterday was the memorial service for, for Bud Tracy. It's been a year. Many of us were there that day. And, and I'm telling you, there's, there's hardly a time that I stand in this pulpit 
where I don't look over here and expect to see his he and Jerry sitting right there. And I'm not going to go through the people who've moved away and all that. that that's, that's not my point this morning. But the, my, my, my question to you is, is it a bad thing that Grace Baptist Church is different than it was two years ago? Not, not necessarily. And the reason why is because a church is a living organism, not an inanimate object. See, Grace Baptist Church has nothing to do with this building. We could convene Grace Baptist Church at the city park under a big tree, and Grace Baptist Church would be meeting. It is a living organism. Uh, uh, Oftentimes, uh, in, in fact, in the Bible, almost every time, not, not every time, but almost every time the church is referred to in Scripture. It is, excuse me, described in a metaphor as being a natural element. Let me give you some examples. The church is often described as a mustard seed, a sower and soil. It is often referred to as a body, a physical person's body, a bride, a branch, a flock, or even a family. See, the church, even in Scripture, is is identified as an organism, not as an inanimate object. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 14, let me give you an example of it. It says, For as the body is one and hath many members... And all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. So also is Christ. Uh, For by one Spirit are we baptized into one body, whether we be uh, Jew or Gentile, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink in one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many." See, this is an example of the of the church being an uh, being an organism and not an inanimate object. What is one truth about a living organism that is unavoidable? Change. Okay, it has a heartbeat, but it, it changes. And the, the reality is this. <clears throat> Recently, I saw a picture of me when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. <clears throat> Guess what? Changed. I changed. <laughs> Just a little bit. Okay? I used to... I used to uh, no, I won't go there. Um, <clears throat> for years, I wore... 32-inch waist jeans. Needless to say, I don't do that anymore. I don't know that I... I don't even know I could get my leg in a 32-inch... Anyway, Sir Isaac Newton in his first law of motion wrote this, every 
continue uh, everything continuous uh, is in a state of rest unless it is compelled to change by forces impressing upon it. What is he saying? Everything, everything continues in a state of rest until it's forced to change. Yeah, <laughs> actually, I eat less now than I did that. I don't how I don't know how that works. I think it's called metabolism, or I don't know what it. <clears throat> Man, you know, I, I, you know, the, the doctor keeps telling me, Rick, you need to eat less. Man, that, well, just my little, just drink water, you know. If it tastes good, spit it out. I don't know. <clears throat> But the reality is this. God, because according to Sir Isaac Newton, which I believe him to be correct on, in his statement, what is God always doing in the life of a church? Changing it. Growing it. What is God, or what should God be doing in each of our lives? Changing us. Growing us. Making us different. So that the un- fortunate reality to life in a church and life as an individual. How many of you have, have, have not seen a friend for many years and gotten together and you both have changed physically, but, but th- that closeness that you once shared wasn't there anymore? Why, why is that? Because they've changed and you've changed. Their priorities have changed and oftentimes your priorities have changed. That's the unfortunate part of life. And a church goes through those changes just like an individual does because a church is not an inanimate object, but a living organism. A church that doesn't change dies. It's really that simple. Just just like if you were to quit changing, you would die as well. Now I want to stop here, and I want to I want to make one thing very perfectly clear. Okay, please do not misunderstand. At the beginning, I said that I am a person that thrives on change, and I do. I I that is just how God made me. Except for one thing. When it comes to this church, I hate change. Every person that we've lost, I don't care for what reason has broken my heart. If I wanted to, I could sit here and I could point at chairs that, and I could say, you know what, so-and-so used to sit there. And many of you are shaking your heads and I, I even see some tears coming down your faces because you miss them too. It hurts. And it ought to hurt. Because if you were to, as a, as a physical body, my, my wife last th- this morning was complaining about her, please forgive me, uh, she's, she's, she, because we went to the beach, she, walking in the sand, it, it, it chipped some of the, the um, uh, nail polish off of her. And now she's like, oh no. <clears throat> and I say, hey, I can fix that. I can just cut your toe off. 
Now, that, that, <laughs> that sounds a little bit extreme, but the reality is it would hurt to lose a toe. It, it would hurt to lose any part of our body. And as a church, being a living organism, it hurts when we lose part of our body. Does it not? There have been many hours spent out in the desert praying. But the reality is this, I've, and this is this is my reality. This is what I've come up with. I have, I have as a pastor, I have, I have two choices. One, I can sit and mourn and feel sorry for myself, or I can move on, learn how to praise God, even when it hurts. Those are my two choices. So the title of my message, if it is a message, it's just really just my heart this morning is learning how to praise. Learning how to praise. Like I said, I have spent many hours out in the desert. I won't tell you where, because I don't want you to be there. (laughs) No offense, but I go there to be alone, okay? Uh, But seriously, there's a place, and I've taken my wife there so she ever knows if I don't come home where to come get the body. Um, but it, it really, it's not very far. But anyway, it's, it's my place uh, where I go and I get alone with God. And there have been many hours of prayer, a lot of, lot of tears. And in those hours of prayer, most of that time have been wordless prayers. Y'all know what I mean? Where you hurt so much, sometimes you just don't even know what to say. And you just sit there and you think, I don't understand. But God has taught me, at least is teaching me, how to praise. Even when it hurts. Second Chronicles <clears throat> chapter 20, let's read verse 1. And it came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them uh, other besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your precious love. We ask that you would speak to our hearts and that you would help us to be more like you in everything that we say and do. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have a picture for you. If Chris would be so kind to put up that picture, I would appreciate it. This is a picture of Israel during the time that Jehoshaphat, or uh, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 is being written. This area down here in the gold or the yellow is the southern, what is called the southern two tribes of Israel. At this particular time, Israel had split in two uh, the northern ten tribes, which we'll talk about later, uh, <clears throat> were uh, ruled by a different king. His name was Ahab. And Jehoshaphat was the king of the southern, the southern tribes. So you had the northern ten tribes and then the southern two tribes. Now, <clears throat> it is important 
at least in my thinking, to understand the story of Jehoshaphat, we need to understand who he is. So my first point this morning is we're going to talk about the life, the life of Jehoshaphat. So in order to do that, we need to go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. So if you would, uh, just go back a few pages to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. So we're going to do a quick review of who Jehoshaphat was. So Second uh, Chronicles chapter 14 says, So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his father, reigned in his stead. Uh, in his days, the land was quiet ten years. So <clears throat> in order to, to understand who Jehoshaphat is, you need to understand the lineage that he came from. David, who is the the second king of Israel, uh, probably the greatest king of Israel, uh, passed the throne to his son, uh, Solomon. Solomon passed the throne to his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam passed his reign to Abijah, who we we just read about, who passed it to Asa. Does that make sense? Okay, so <clears throat> I don't know how many great, great, greats it goes back, but David was Jehoshaphat's great, 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 great grandfather. Y- y- y'all get that? Okay, so he comes from the line of David, which is obviously important uh, because he's going to become uh, king of Israel. So in, in verses 2 of chapter 14, Let's read, let's read verse 2. And Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord uh, his God. For he took away the altars and, of the strange gods uh, and the high places and break down the images and cut down the groves <clears throat> uh, and commanded uh, Judah to seek the Lord God uh, of their father uh, and to do the law and, and the commandment. Verse 5, also he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the images, uh, and the kingdom was quiet before him. So Asa starts off really strong. He comes in and he basically does away with the idolatry that his father Abijah had allowed to take place within the kingdom. Now, if you understand and you know the Old Testament, David was a good king. Solomon was a relatively good king, but he got his eyes off of God and onto the pagan gods of his wives, passed the throne to his son, uh, Rehoboam, who was the one who was instrumental in causing a division between the, 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 the nation, thus forming the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. His son, Abijah, allowed, he did, he, did, I, he really didn't um, condemn or uh, participate in idol worship, but he allowed idol worship to take place. Does that make sense? So Asa comes along and understands that God does not want pagan worship happening in the land of Israel. So when he takes over, after uh, Abijah, Abijah, Abijah dies, 
Asa comes in and cleans house, so to speak. Does that, y'all following? Okay, because this is important. Uh, <clears throat> turn over to chapter 16. <clears throat> now, Asa started well. Uh, he, he, did, he did that which was right in the eyes of God, but he didn't always walk with God. Look at chapter 16, verse 11. And behold, the acts of Asa, first and last, lo, uh, they are written in the books of the Judah and Israel. And Asa, in his thirty and ninth year of his reign, was diseased, excuse me, uh, in his feet, until his disease was exceeding great. Yet his disease sought him, uh, uh, he sought not the Lord, but the physicians. You get that? He was, he was, Asa was more concerned with what his doctors told him than what God told him. Now, I'm here to tell you that I think, I don't know, but I think the medical profession has advanced greatly since the days of Asa. (laughs) Just a little bit. But I'm here to tell you God wants us to trust in Him more than our doctors. I know people. Well, never mind. This is this is. I don't want to get. I don't want to get on sidetrack. Asa sought the physicians more than God. And if we are going to be godly people, God has to be the priority in our lives. Look at verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 1. And Jehoshaphat, the son, uh, his son, reigned in his stead and strengthened himself against Israel. Now, <clears throat> it's under, you need to understand the lineage that, that, that Jehoshaphat comes from. Jehoshaphat's grandfather was the one who allowed paganism to flourish in Israel. Jehoshaphat's dad did away with paganism, but in his older years, what did he do? He turned away from God, did he not? So now Jehoshaphat is coming in and taking over the reign, and his his lineage is mixed, if if you would, as far as his godly heritage. He's got some great influences, but he's got some really bad influences in his life also. Can we go back to the picture, Chris? <clears throat> now, here is the, again, the picture. This blue is the northern ten tribes. <clears throat> and King Ahab is uh, ruling the, the blue section. And Jehoshaphat, the gold or the yellow down here. So... <clears throat> What happens is, shortly after Jehoshaphat becomes king, Ahab, the king in the blue, gets in a jam. And he needs help in fighting the enemy. So he comes to Jehoshaphat and he 
he talks Jehoshaphat into joining forces to battle the enemy. Y'all follow me there? Okay. <clears throat> so, let's look at chapter 18, verse 3. And Ahab, uh, the king of Israel, said unto Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Wilt thou go <clears throat> with me, uh, Ramoth Gilead? And he answered him, I am as thou art, and my people as thy people, and we will be with thee in the war. So, <clears throat> because all of this is Israel, Jehoshaphat, being a new king, trying to be friendly with Ahab, <clears throat> makes an ungodly alliance. Because Ahab, <clears throat> the king of the blue, the blue section, is a idol worshiper, and not only is he an idol worshiper, but he's a God hater. Even though you would think, wait a minute, how could a king of Israel uh, be a God hater? Well, if you understand Old Testament, uh, none of the kings, not one of the kings of the northern ten tribes was a good man. In fact, they all got worse. And and the uh, the the northern ten tribes were 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 only part of Israel by name, not by relationship. Does that make sense? So, <clears throat> in verses six and seven of chapter eighteen, Jehoshaphat goes to Ahab and says, "You know what? Hey." I didn't think about this before I agreed to come, but you know what? I think we kind of need to bring God in on this thing. So, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, in, uh, in chapter 18, let's, let's read verses 6 and 7. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there uh, not here a prophet of the Lord beside that we might inquire of him? You know, what's he say? Hey, you know what? I didn't ask God about joining with you, but now that we've done it, let's see if we can get God involved. Uh, lesson here. Um, it's better to get God involved in your decisions before you make them, okay, just saying, than, than to wait until you've made the mistake and say, God, bail me out. Okay, just that was a free commercial, okay. Verse 7, it says, And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may acquire of the Lord, but I hate him. Why do you think? Ahab hated him because, because he was the man of God. And everything Ahab did was against God. So the man of God always was against him. So he hated him. Um, pretty logical there. Um, for he uh, never prophesied good unto me. It's because you never did good. But always evil. The same is Micaiah, the son of Imlah, and Jehoshaphat said, let not, let not the king say so. Anyway, so basically what happens is they call Micaiah, the, the prophet. The prophet comes and says, okay, guys, and it, it, I'm, uh, this is the Rick Lynn mini version here. He says, look, eventually he says, look, if you guys go to war, 
Ahab, you're going to die. It's that simple. So guess what happens? They go to war. (laughs) And guess what happened? Ahab died. But in the process, Jehoshaphat is almost killed. Look at chapter 19, verse 1 through 3. And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, uh, returned to his house uh, in peace to Jerusalem. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I meant chapter 18, verse 31. I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. <clears throat> and it came to pass when the captain of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said, uh, it, it is the king of Israel. Uh, therefore, they compassed about him uh, to fight. But Jehoshaphat cried out and the Lord helped him and God moved them to depart from him. And then if you keep reading, and we're not going to for time time's sake, uh, Jehoshaphat's killed in battle and so on, and so on, and so on. But uh, our, our Ahab is killed, and but Jehoshaphat is almost killed. But because he cried out to God, God heard him and diverted the enemy, and he was safe. He returns, basically, in the first three verses. Again, I'll just tell you what happens. Uh, in, in chapter 19, the first three verses, uh, his prophet, the prophet of the, of the southern two tribes, comes to him after the battle, after he returns safely, and he gives him an earful from God because he made the ungodly alliance with Ahab. Does that, y'all follow there? Okay, so all of this stuff has happened. In chapter 19, <clears throat> there is relative peace, and uh, 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 Jehoshaphat, Uh, appoints judges and does the governmental stuff, and that's the rest of chapter 19. So that brings us to chapter 20. So now you know who Jehoshaphat is. Now he is, in verse 1, surrounded by three enemies. Three armies are getting ready to attack. If you see here, you have here the uh, kingdom of Ammon and the kingdom of Moab. The third kingdom is from across the sea. So you got three armies converging on little old Judah. Look at verse 2 of chapter 20. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude. That's That's three armies, a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side of Syria. And behold, they be in uh, Hazor, Haz, whatever, uh, which is in Gedi. But get the first couple of words in verse 3. And Jehoshaphat what? Feared. And Jehoshaphat feared. Back when I was in the Navy, <clears throat> I was <clears throat> I was single, had had uh, had no responsibilities other than to show up to work at, on time. And <clears throat> I decided that I was going to buy a motorcycle. I had never owned a motorcycle, had only ridden a motorcycle once before, but I thought, you know what, that sounds like fun. 
So I bought a, I went out and bought a motorcycle, and then I realized that in order to get um, a, a base sticker for my motorcycle, I had to go through a motorcycle safety class, which now I highly recommend. I've done I've done twice. I've had multiple motorcycles since, and if you have a motorcycle and you've never been through a safety class, you need to do it. But anyway. So I, I get to the, uh, I, I go to my, my command and say, hey, I, I need to get a, a sticker. Uh, I need to take the safety class, and it's right here on base. And, you know, can I have a week off to take this class? Because it was a whole week. And <clears throat> so, you know, I get, got the permission and everything. So I go, I go to this class. And here, here I, I, I'm in a class with about, I don't know, 20, 15 or 20 other guys with motorcycles and and, and they're, they're all brand new. <laughs> you know, mo- at least most of them are. And the instructor gets up and he asks us a question. He says, now, how many of you in the room today think that you're here so that I can teach you how to, how to ride your motorcycle? And I, along with, I think most everybody else, raised our hands. And then he said this. He says, that's not why you're here today. You're here today so that I can teach you how to wreck your motorcycle. Now, if that doesn't get your attention, I don't know what else to want. I, I mean, I'm like, dude, I just bought it. Are you kidding me? You want me to wreck it? Then he said, I can promise you, if you ride motorcycles long enough, you are going to wreck your motorcycle. He said, now most of the time, it won't be your fault. Somebody's going to pull out in front of you, I'm going to teach you how to do what to do. You're going you're to hit a, an oil spot on the road, and the bike's going to come out from under you. He said, I'm going to teach you what to do. And he went through several scenarios, but then he, he culminated the statement by saying this. He said, I want you to understand that <clears throat> what you do when you wreck will determine the extent of your injuries. He was right. I've only wrecked once. But everything he taught me saved my life. See, I'm here to tell you, life happens to all of us. Life will happen to you. If if you're not going through a difficult time right now, trust me, you will. Just because you come to church and just because you've accepted Christ into your life and just because you live right does not exempt you from hardship. Hardship still happens. And I'm here to tell you that what you do when that hardship comes will determine whether you survive or not. What you do when the 
difficulties come will determine the extent of your injuries. Jehoshaphat feared. Have you ever feared before? I mean, think about the fear that he had to have been experiencing at this time. The fear had to, had to have gripped his heart. Three great armies coming against you. There is no hope. There is nowhere to run. There is, there is not a glimmer of hope that you could go toe-to-toe with your teeny little army against three great armies. It, it ain't happening. Can you, can you imagine the fear? Did I give you point number two? Sorry, I just finished it. The test of Jehoshaphat's faith. Faith. Sorry. (laughs) I cannot imagine being in his predicament, knowing that there was nothing I could do. Now, there have been times in my life, and I'm, be, I'm just being honest, there have been times in my life where I've, I, I've faced things and I've thought, God, I don't, I don't know what to do. I, I, I don't know what you... I, and I, I see some head, Baba heads going, and, and you know exactly what I'm talking about because we've all been there. Point number three, the reassurance that God is in control. Let's look back at verse three. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and to proclaim a feast throughout all Judah. See, God, or or Jehoshaphat feared and then he sought God. That has to be our answer. That has to be our answer. If we seek the wisdom of men, we are going to fail. But Jehoshaphat sought God. In verses 3 to 13, Jehoshaphat not only seeks the Lord, but he encourages the people of Judah to do the same. Hey, we're in big trouble. We need to get a hold of God because without God, we're, we're done. We have no hope. Look at verse verse 14. Then, upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jehiel, and the son of, I don't know, I'm surprised I got those names. What? Mataniah, okay, thanks. A Levite, the son of, uh, man, he was had a lot of dads. Good night. Um, uh, Asaph uh, came uh, the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation, and he said, Hearken ye, all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou, King Jehoshaphat, thou sayest uh, the Lord... Excuse me, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed, 
by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is not yours, but God's. Verse 17. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourself, stand ye, fa- uh, stand, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. See, what happened? The king and Judah, the people, got together and said, you know what? We have no hope. And we are going to seek the Lord. And because they sought the Lord, the Lord said to them, fear not. This is my fight, not yours. Verses 23 and 24. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the the inhabitants of Seir and utterly slay and destroy them. And And when they had made an end to the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. In other words, they killed each other. God caused them a stir between the three armies. And we don't know what he did or why, but everybody turned on, on the army from Mount Seir. And then after that army was decimated, the other two armies turned on each other and utterly destroyed each other. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked <clears throat> unto the multitude, and behold, there were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. Absolute Annihilation. Total destruction of three great armies. And God brought it all about. But I purposely omitted the most important part of the story. See, we see Jehoshaphat and the people seeking the Lord. God promises a great victory and God delivers a great victory. Point number four, the priority of praise. The priority of praise. This is what I omitted. Look at verse 20. And they arose early in the morning, that would be the morning of the battle, and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And and as they went forth, Jehoshaphat, stood and said, hear, hear me, O Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, <clears throat> so shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And when he had uh, consulted with the people, <clears throat> he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that they should praise the beauty of the holiness as they went out before the army for his testimony or excuse me for his mercy 
endureth forever. What happened? The most important part of the battle was the morning of the battle. Jehoshaphat had, had probably slept well that night because he knew the battle was God's and that God was in control. And he gets up and he calls the army together and he calls the people together and he says, guys, there's been a battle, a battle plan change. Instead of the infantry going first, the singers are going to take your place. And he takes the singers and he puts them in the front lines and he says, when the battle starts, you start praising God because the battle is his, not ours. And way too often, when hard times come, we focus on the enemy. We forget to praise. Victory came only after they sought the Lord, they worshiped the Lord, but more importantly, after they praised the Lord. We allow the things of life to drag us down. And those things can rob away our joy they can steal away the praise in our hearts. They can cause us to become bitter. They can cause us to become angry. And we lose our joy. I want to read you Psalm 150. Because in Psalm 150, God teaches us uh, where to praise Him. And in Psalm 150, verse 1, it says, Praise ye the Lord. God, uh, praise God in, in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the firmament of His power. In other words, praise Him everywhere you go. So where do we praise Him? Everywhere. Verse 2, we see how to praise. Praise Him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Why do we praise him? Because he's great. Where do we praise him? Everywhere we go. And then how do we praise him? Verses 3 to 6. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the psaltery and the harp. Praise him with the, the timbrel and dance. Praise him with the stringed instruments and organs. Praise Him upon the loud cymbals. Praise Him upon the high-sounding uh, cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise you, Lord. How are we supposed to praise the Lord? With every fiber of our being. Earlier, I made the statement <clears throat> that my heart as a pastor breaks when I look out and I see seats where people used to sit. And it does. And I also said I had two choices. I can sit and mourn and feel sorry for myself. And, and I, I'm, I, I hate to say this, but I have. But I've chosen to move on and learn how to praise even when it hurts. 
Grace Baptist Church, we have two choices. We can sit, sit and feel sorry for ourselves or we can move on and learn how to praise God together. Individuals have the same choice because life is going to happen. When, when, when troubles and trials and struggles, and you know, I don't care what you call it, you know what I'm talking about. When it comes into your life, you have two choices. You can sit and mourn and feel sorry for yourself, or you can learn how to praise God even when it hurts. The choice is yours. Victory. Victory. Please get this, because this is the key to the whole thing. Victory only comes after they sought the Lord, after they worshipped, and after they praised. My question, very, 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 very simple today, this morning. I've made my choice. I'm, I'm doing my best to allow God to teach me how to praise Him. Am I there yet? I I don't think so, but I I, I am learning how to spend time with Him like I've never spent time with Him before. Grace Baptist Church, we have a choice to make. Are we going to sit around and feel sorry for for ourselves because of the people we've lost uh, over the last couple years? I, I, I... I hope not. We need to learn how to praise God. In fact, if God allows me, I'm going to be preaching several messages on praise. Because we need to learn how to do that. And then the third, the third thing is, if you're not in a struggle right now, you will be. And what you do in the midst of that struggle will determine the injuries that you will have because of the struggle. I'm here to tell you, learn how to praise. Learn how to worship. Learn how to praise. Because it's the praise during the hard times that will get us through. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father,